Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of Asley Ecocast. We're happy to be sharing with you more audio from Asley's Spotlight series, which feature moderated conversations with Asley members who have produced new critical and creative work in the environmental humanities. Episodes follow a theme and highlight publicly engaged scholarship. This special episode is the third of the series, A Sense of Urgency, recorded on May 14th, 2021, and features April Anson and Rahul Mukherjee as co-hosts, and panelists Xuan Xu, Vincent Ialenti, Gretchen Henderson, and Muge Gedik, who is representing the Liberal Arts Collective at the Pennsylvania State University. The final episode in the series, Identity and Place, will be held on Friday, June 11th at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, and you can register to virtually attend that event by visiting asli.org. The audio for that episode will also be released as a special episode of EcoCast next month. And our warmest welcomes to uh, this third ASLI Spotlight on a new work in the environmental humanities and eco-criticism. My name is April Anson. I'm an assistant professor of public humanities at San Diego State University um, and am honored to serve on the executive council of ASLI. I, just a little bit about me, I work at the intersection of environmental humanities and American studies, paying particular attention to indigenous studies and political theory. Um, and my, I'm currently working on a book project that explores the relationship between white supremacy, American environmental thinking, and literary genre, while also suggesting an early environmental justice tradition in indigenous literatures um, and the ways that there's, those are vital models for our thinking about climate change today, both narrative and political. So for those of you joining um, ASLI in an ASLI event for the first time, an extra hearty welcome. ASLI is a professional organization that seeks to inspire and promote intellectual work in the environmental humanities and arts. We're so glad for you to join us today and invite you to help sustain and further our work by becoming ASLI members. Um, and, And just a a heads up on the, the brilliant conference um, that will occur over Zoom this summer and, um, and feature the, just the, the wide variety of, and generous work by our members. So I'm speaking to you to today from the unceded territories of the Kumeyaay peoples, the original and um, inhabitants and continual caretakers of their homelands from what's currently called San Diego and Imperial counties in California to 60 miles south of the Mexican border for over 12,000 years. Together with the Tejana Odom peoples of the Sonoran Desert, the Kumeyaay um, have been in a fight to protect their territorial sovereignty, ancestral burial sites, and sacred places from the destruction um, occurred by border wall construction. So while active building of the border wall has been halted, they're now in a fight to properly restore the damage that the last four years have wrought where sites have been bulldozed, desecrated, and destroyed. But this is just one of their ongoing fights um, in a county that holds the most reservations in the United States and the second highest level of biodiversity. Um, So just in a a broad um, kind of um, way to think about land acknowledgements, as fraught as these are, um, I just want to emphasize that, you know, each of the nations that uh, whose land we are we're living in are in distinct fights for their sovereignty, fights that are inherently environmental, um, because sovereignties are constituted by relations with human and non-human kin. So, just want to take a moment to encourage us all to find out whose land we're on, what fights they're in, and join them. And today, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce a sense of urgency, the third in Asley's Spotlight series. ASLI's executive committee envisioned and designed this new series to elevate uh, members' work in creative writing, scholarship, and public engagement. And we're excited to foster connections with new public audiences through these virtual events. As we get started, I want to extend special thanks to the Penn Program for Environmental Humanities for co-sponsorship of this event and to the University of Pennsylvania for supplementing our resources at ASLI. Special thanks to Angela Ferranda at PPH, as well, to Amy, as well as to Amy McIntyre, Asley's amazing managing director, um, a thankless job that she does so gracefully. Additionally, this event would not be possible without the work of the Spotlight Planning Committee, the Selection Committee, and we extend um, a special gratitude for their labor expertise and time. By way of logistical information, we ask that you remain on mute and we'll have time for questions following our panelists' presentations, after which we'll ask that you use the chat or the raise hand function on your reactions button to indicate you have a question. 
Taking inspiration from Eve Tuck's Q&A protocols, we also encourage you to ask concise questions that are open to generating dialogue and attentive to power relations, keeping in mind the brief minutes we have together. Amy will staff the controls and waiting room on that. It is my great fortune to introduce our guest moderator, Rahul Mukherjee, who's the Dick Wolf Associate Professor of Television and New Media Studies and um, Associate Professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. His academic preoccupations often meander into imaginings about media's role with and in alternative futures for and of politics and technology. His 2020 book, Radiant Infrastructures, Media, Environments, and Cultures of Uncertainty, involves mediations of debates and controversies related to radiation emitting technologies such as cell antennas and nuclear reactors. And speaking personally, I see the relevance of the, um, the insights that are just so um, woven throughout that in his entire book. I see them everywhere. So I highly recommend, um, I, re I recommend infra radiant infrastructures. Dr. Mukherjee is an, also an editor for Journal of Visual Culture and serves on the editorial advisory board of Media and Environment. Uh, Rahul will now introduce our panelists and then he and I will moderate discussion and dialogue after they briefly speak. Rahul, over to you. Thanks, April, for this uh, very, very generous uh, introduction. Great to join this uh, conversation. I would also like to acknowledge that my university, University of Pennsylvania, and I are located on the ancestral homelands of the Leni Lenape people who've long stewarded the lands, waters, and life of Lenape Hoking. Uh, so we have an amazing group of projects to discuss today. Uh, so I'll uh, get started with the introductions, of the fabulous uh, scholars here. Uh, Sean Chu, uh, author of The Smell of Risk, is a professor of English at the University of California, Davis, um, working in the areas of American literature, cultural geography, critical ethnic studies, sensory studies, and the environmental humanities. He's currently working on a project about racial disparities in air conditioning, thermoception, and affect. Um, uh, our second uh, uh, speaker today, Winsett Ilenti, uh, author of Deep Time Reckoning, is an assistant research professor at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs and a MacArthur postdoctoral fellow at uh, University of British Columbia. I guess he's right now in Vancouver, is my sense. Uh, Winsett's research has been supported by the U.S. National Science Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and the MacArthur Foundation. Alongside his academic work, Vincent has written for NPR, Forbes, BBC, Future, Atlas Obscura, and other public outlets. Uh, uh, we also have uh, Muge Gedik. Uh, uh, Muge has recently completed a Master of Arts degree in Comparative Literature at the Pennsylvania State University. I believe uh, she received her uh, uh, degree just last week. Her interests include modern Turkish Latin American global Anglophone literatures, feminist theory, eco-criticism, and environmental humanities. Her master's research explored contemporary climate fiction from Turkey and Cuba within a critical framework of the Anthropocene. Uh, Mugia represents the Liberal Arts Collective, or LAC, a graduate student organization at the Pennsylvania State University. So a little bit about LAC. Uh, LAC started in 2016 by organizing a small conference around the topic of race in the Americas, the conference was repeated in the following year with great success and with growing participation from various fields. Um, it became an interdisciplinary junction point. Then the graduate student in languages and literatures established LAC as a student organization. As an interdisciplinary group, they promote scholarship in the humanities, build community across different fields of study, and highlight the ways that different disciplines inform and shape one another. And of course, uh, she'll tell us more about LAC. Uh, Gretchen Henderson, author of the forthcoming Life in the Tar Seeps from uh, Trinity University Press, is Associate Director for Research at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas at Austin, and the author of four books along with arts, media, and opera liberty. Uh, in 2018-2019, she was the Annie Clark Tanner Fellow in Environmental Humanities at the University of Utah, with recent writing published in Ecotone, Plowshares, Canyon Review, and Nature Sustainability. Thanks to all of you for joining us with your fabulous projects. Love to hear more soon. So I think we'll start with Sean Shu or Gretchen, actually, it seems like. Yeah. We should start with Sean Shu. I'm sorry. I, I had the wrong That's slide. My mistake. Thanks, Amy. 
All right. So um, thanks to Amy McIntyre, Angela Ferranda, Rahul, and April for all of your work in setting up this event and in hosting. Also, thanks to the Spotlight Committee. Um, I'm really honored and excited to be part of this conversation. So before starting, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking from the unceded land of the Patwin people. Um, my book was motivated by an interest in recuperating smell as a sense that's deeply implicated in aesthetics and politics, and especially as a sense that conveys embodied knowledge about environmental risk and relationships. I argue that the very qualities that disqualified smell from modern Western aesthetics, that it's volatile, subjective, immersive, affective, difficult to verbalize, biochemical, and involuntary, make it a powerful medium for staging environmental risks. I draw on the range, a range of fields, material ecocriticism, race studies, indigenous studies, atmospheric geography, and sensory studies to rethink smell as a visceral and widely available tool for sensing and communicating the atmosphere's biochemical influences on bodies, minds, and moods. Histories of hygiene tend to frame modernization as a progressive movement towards the regulation or eradication of noxious smells. I argue instead that modernity is driven by patterns of differential deodorization that redistribute bad air to poor, more vulnerable communities within and far beyond the US. The deodorization of Western aesthetics serves to both obscure and devalue the kinds of knowledge and narratives afforded by smell. Olfactory aesthetics can counteract this tendency toward deodorization, reclaiming smell as a sense that's deeply attuned to the material agency of differentiated air. So the first half of the book studies a range of forms where smell plays an unusually pronounced role. I start with detective fiction, contrasting 19th century accounts of the detective as an agent of deodorization on the scent of deviant odors and individuals with later works where the detective's nose traces violence and premature death to infrastructural and atmospheric agencies. Another chapter looks at literary naturalism, an unusually smelly form that dramatizes how atmosphere enters, debilitates, and slowly kills characters and populations. I trace naturalist olfactory description from 19th century authors to Elena Maria Viramontes' novels about the ambient effects of pesticide exposure and freeway construction experienced by Latinx communities in California. I also try to provide in another chapter a framework for understanding olfactory art or art that incorporates scent as a provocative emergent medium for environmental and environmental justice engagement. The last two chapters focus more explicitly on how atmosphere and odor have worked as media of racialization and settler colonialism. I introduced the term Atma Orientalism to delineate the long history of anti-Chinese discourse that construes Asiatics as a malodorous miasmatic threat to respiration and health, clearly evident in recent assaults on people appearing to be Chinese during the COVID pandemic, and also evident in this map of New York's smelliest blocks um, in Chinatown pictured here. And I read Suisin Farr's Mrs. Spring Fragrance and Annika Yee's Guggenheim installation, Life is Cheap, in which she gasses visitors with the smells of bacteria sourced from Chinatown and Koreatown as interventions in this discourse of anti-Asian olfactory racism. Finally, I consider how settler colonialism has transformed indigenous smellscapes. In addition to exposing the devastating effects of both the devaluation of smell and of atmospheric deracination on indigenous people, I consider how the Hawaiian poet activist Haunani K. Trask and the Potawatomi plant scientist Robin Wall Kimmerer write about Kanaka Maoli, Potawatomi, and Mohawk relationships, personal, aesthetic, or ceremonial, with fragrant materials such as rock musk, miley vine, and sweetgrass. Trask and Kimmerer framed the smells of indigenous land and plants as modes of communication that call them into renewed relationships of reciprocity with the more than human world. Overall, I hope that the book will help energize new research on olfactory ecologies as a consequential and often overlooked site of atmospheric violence and contestation. Thanks. All right, so I'm up. <laughs> Looks like it, all right. Uh, so thank you for having me. This is a wonderful event. Thanks, Asley, for putting it together. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the unceded territory of the Musqueam people, uh, and I'm here to talk to you about Deep Time Reckoning, 
uh, which is a book that's based on two and a half years of ethnographic, you know, anthropological fieldwork in Finland among the nuclear waste uh, repository safety case experts that live there. So these experts were working on what will likely become the world's first deep geologic repository for spent nuclear fuel. The repository was sited beneath the island of Okiloro in the Gulf of Bothnia in the Baltic Sea. Safety case experts were required by Finland's nuclear regulatory authority, Stuk, to develop pragmatic forecasts of distant future ecosystems, populations, and health risks. So they modeled how 14 different kinds of radionuclides could someday escape from the repository, travel through groundwater channels, get released at various points on Earth's surface, and then disperse in above ground ecosystems, bioaccumulating at times in plants and animals along the way. Conducting 121 interviews, I explored how they folded a complex series of scenarios, hopes, calculations, fears, data sets, dreams, models, interpersonal squabbles and anxieties about Finland's socio-ecological futures into these kind of mundane artifacts of technocratic paperwork. When looking deep time in the eye, the safety case experts opted, uh, adopted an outlook of what Emmanuel Levinas once called infinition, a cognitive state in which radical complexity is allowed to overflow the thoughts that are trying to think it. This rendered them uniquely comfortable with radical ambiguity and uncertainty. Taking their epistemic sensibilities seriously, my book explores how ethnographic methods can be used to mine safety case expertise for techniques that experts and publics alike can adopt to become more skilled deep time reckoners. And what emerged from this field study um, is a book that's in sort of a hybrid genre. It's one part ethnographic study. It's another part of how to guide in the art of long-termism. And it's another part of a piece of rhetoric. It's a call to action for short-sighted societies uh, facing down uh, today's global ecological crisis. Some call it the Anthropocene. Written in accessible prose, the book's goal is to provide a cognitive toolkit to help readers widen their intellectual time horizons. I call the tools in this kit reckonings, and each chapter ends with five or six of them. Each offers takeaway guidance for becoming a more skilled deep time reckoner. Let me give an example. So the safety case experts often used analogical reasoning techniques. Some of them studied a present day glacial ice sheet in Congreluswak, Greenland, doing field work out there, as an analog for making inferences about a far future glacial ice sheet in Finland during and after the next ice age. Others studied a bronze cannon from the shipwrecked 17th century Swedish warship Kronen, which was submerged for almost three centuries in Baltic seawater in the seabed there. They studied it as an analog for how Finland's nuclear waste uh, repositories canisters that they put the spent fuel in may or may not corrode across deep time. In both cases, Safety case experts use present-day objects as stand-in features for making rough, reductive comparisons across millennia. The challenge for me as an anthropologist was to kind of retool these patterns of thinking into long-sighted uh, long brainstorming pathways for the reader. So my book walks readers through how they can do similar types of exercises, um, analogical exercises, inspired by safety case thinking in their own lives. For example, when I was writing this book in Washington, D.C., I learned about how in 1922, uh, excavators were clearing ground for the uh, building this uh, nearby Mayflower Hotel. And when they were doing this, they found bald cypress trees fossilized uh, 20 feet below the surface. And these trees grew 100,000 years ago. And today, four bald cypresses planted in the mid-1800s to commemorate this grow in Lafayette Square right near the White House. And I, when I walked by them, the trees became analogical tools for me, analogical resources, empirical, concrete material resources I could draw upon to help me think more widely across time. They provided me with ancient tree imageries I could envision when reimagining uh, the U.S. Capitol analogically as a prehistoric marshland or swamp. So what did this do? Well, making this analogy at the level of my everyday experience, and making it sort of a phenomenological uh, thing I could experience in kind of this deep time sensorium as I walked through the city, it stretched the momentary now of my walk into these much uh, wider histories and futures. In my book, I challenge readers to uh, integrate deep time exercises like these into their everyday habits and routines as well. My goal is to nurture a more robust societal time literacy in a historic moment of mass societal fixation on knee-jerk social media uh, 
debates, uh, frenzied 24-hour cable news cycles, uh, short-sighted productivity metrics, shallow political election time horizons, and uh, unpredictable shifts in shareholder returns. As public enthusiasm for liberal arts education and scientific inquiry uh, deflates, I suggest societies enter into this dis disorienting state of futureless liminality. Uh, more, more about that in my book. Um, I hope the deep time reckoning can draw readers uh, to make small everyday steps towards resisting this myopic fixation on the now, which incessantly shoots down long-term proposals for envisioning better worlds. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vincent. And next we'll hear from you um, and the liberal arts, she's gonna talk about the liberal arts collective at Pennsylvania State. Hi everyone, as the Liberal Arts Collective or LAG, we're thrilled to be a part of the third session of the ALSA Spotlight Series. We would like to thank the organizers of this event. I'm very excited to be in this virtual room with you and other members of our team are also here. Before we start, we acknowledge that Penn State's land grant was taken from more than 100 tribes with the Memorial Act that created land grants for universities across the United States and Penn State's campuses and we are located on the ancestral homelands of the Iri, Haudenosaunee, Lenni Lenape, Shawnee, Susquehannock, and Wajaji nations. In order to commit to the work of dismantling the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism and the exclusions and erasures of many indigenous peoples, it is crucial for us as the University Park students to reflect and address the complicated past of exploitation and dispossession of indigenous peoples by our university. So what you're seeing in the slide is the team behind the Unraveling the Anthropocene project. We call this year's project Unraveling the Anthropocene, Race, Environment and Pandemic to reflect the intersections of the pandemic with the racial and environmental crises. In our discussions with scholars, activists, artists and community members, we address how global ecological crises both impact and are impacted by political turmoil, uh, widespread outbreaks of infectious disease and racial violence. Unraveling the Anthropocene is a multi-platform event. It includes the podcast series, a parallel reading group, and a roundtable that took place in March. I encourage you to check our website and our pilot episode in which we introduce our team and also explain our story in detail. So one part of our title is the Anthropocene, and you might be familiar with this term. The term suggests that we're living in a time where humans have become one of the most powerful forces that determine how the earth functions. We knew that there was a lot of controversy surrounding the term, for example, periodization, anthropocentrism. Uh, we also need to recognize the entanglement of human activity and non-human agencies. Another problem is the category of the anthropos, the human, and it requires that we question the very foundation of the universalist Western liberal subjectivity, ethics, and politics that fetishize the capacity of human reason and also human rights discourses to resolve uh, environmental crises. So when the COVID-19 pandemic started, maybe you remember we had a saying, we're in this together, but we're critical of such sweeping universal statements and the crisis urgency, emergency discourses surrounding the pandemic. We believe that they include long and diverse histories that culminate in our contemporary moments. So our urgency is to unravel the Anthropocene and by unraveling the Anthropocene, we mean creating a platform that allows for a conversation between the growing body of definitions, studies, and lived experiences during this area of transition in their various manifestations in diverse fields and also in various media. Our series hopes to establish a dialogue between different forms of knowledge production and transmission. In our project, we also program multiplicities and we take race, class, and gender as important categories, and we pay attention to the historical specificities and lineages of colonialism, extractive politics, slavery, dehumanization, and objectification of lives, and also matter. Our podcast aims to offer a timely intervention, and we hope to serve as an archive of our contemporary moment of this irreversible change. So we invite speakers from all over the world to discuss their experiences and also their research to envision a different form of transnational solidarity. We have a couple of main questions and these are 
Which communities are being disproportionately affected by the climate crisis and the pandemic? How do governments, transnational corporations, and civil society organizations approach these issues? What is the relationship between increasing police violence, discriminatory immigration policies, censorship, and other forms of oppression that contribute to the profound disparity in how environmental crises are experienced by different communities? And finally, we ask our guests, what are some ways in which research, activism, art, and outreach programs can help raise awareness and also redress issues of environmental and racial justice. So far, we have released 24 episodes and we have more to come. Topics we have covered include the ways in which humor could be a tool to speak back to power and histories of colonialism in Africa, documenting Black Lives Matter in New York City through photography, confronting religious and environmental racism in Brazil, Transboundary water justice and environmental peace building in the Middle East, linking climate change and racial justice through eco intersectional analyses. So, for a full list of our episodes, I invite you to explore our website and also our Spotify page. I will be sharing the links in the chat. And thank you. We're looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much, Miha, and then the Liberal Arts Collective. Um, very excited to dig into that work. And last but not least, Gretchen. Thank you all for coming today. It's really my pleasure and privilege to join such amazing presenters um, with thanks to our hosts, April, Rahul, Amy, and all the other um, lovely organizers and selection committee. I'm joining in person from Washington, D.C., virtually through Texas to speak about Utah. So there are too many lands to acknowledge, but Focusing on Utah, given that the Salt Lake Valley has always been a gathering place for indigenous peoples, I'd like to acknowledge this land as the traditional and ancestral homelands of the Ute, Shoshone, Paiute, Kutut tribes um, that remains a crossroad for indigenous peoples. Hopefully my slide and its medley of photographs is up to ground you all a bit in the landscape that is the subject of my forthcoming book on life in the tar seats, overlooked ecologies at Great Salt Lake and beyond. And I'll just read a small sampling. I went to Great Salt Lake after recovering from being hit by a car on man-made asphalt, but it took me longer to correlate the lake's car seats of natural asphalt by comparison. Associations of life and death, degeneration and regeneration, injury and healing slowly started to congeal. Over that time, I witnessed a team of environmental scientists, artistic curators, land managers, and students working collaboratively to steward a challenging place. My accident colored the backdrop against which I came to see the lake, not as dead, but as wildly alive, a watershed for shifting perceptions of any overlooked place. At Great Salt Lake, an intricate and vulnerable web supports many lives. The lake's story shifts with water cycles, bird migrations, microbial studies, environmental arts, and cultural histories shaped by indigenous knowledges overwritten by colonial settlements whose legacies live on in environmental threats. At Roselle Point, in the remote north arm of the lake, a series of car seats converge near the iconic earthwork by Robert Smithson called Spiral Jetty. Car seats are pools of raw oil that creep up from tectonic fractures and spread across the Earth's surface like sticky flypaper. Spiral Jetty uncoils a massive spiral of salt-encrusted black basalt around 15 feet wide and 1,500 feet long counterclockwise into Great Salt Lake. Smithson deliberately placed Spiral Jetty adjacent to the tar seeps and their abandoned attempts at oil drilling to invite comparison. Visitors sometimes mistake the black sprawl of oil seeps and their straight jetty for his artwork. Through repeated visits to the site, I grew to see Spiral Jetty and the tar seeps side by side, both as earthworks, one by man, the other nature made, suggesting natural agency and articulation beyond words. Both inscriptions beckoned beyond human understanding raising questions about many kinds of marks that we make on this earth. They are reminders that if we learn to perceive one small spot of an overlooked lake with so-called death traps in a reputedly dead sea, we may yet review other underappreciated corners of the planet, both far afield and right where we are. Trying to find alternative narratives for climate change beyond apocalypse, prophecy, elegy, or tug of warring tropes between progress and loss can cause us to chase the tales of our tales Shapes of stories recur to mark the edges of our fears, though our tellings often fall into predictable patterns and fossilize 
separating us from the animal that we are. All of us are gloriously yet vulnerably entangled, but so many stories arise from fear of death rather than awe of life, disengaging the individual from the communal and the human from the non-human. The climate crisis isn't a linear narrative. It's more like car seats where a step can get us stuck. At Roselle Point, the otherworldly landscape swallows a human body into the reality of its smallness, the gravity of its orbit. On the ground, seemingly isolated, relationships tighten, connecting art to car, to salt, to water. Actions recalibrate. Each movement demands presence. Senses awaken beyond sight. Life reduces elementally. Human presence is thrown into relief as perceptions deform around how we devalue any place. Each year at Roselle Point, the surface melts. Natural asphalt bubbles up from underground sludge and creeps across the face of the earth. Roselle Point resists easy meanings of what is valued and not, of beauty and ugliness, of purity and ruin, of benefit and loss, of access and distance, of place and displacement. Binaries break down fear and hope, danger and safety, conserved and wasted, wounded and healed. In a world characterized by oppositions, Roselle Point reveals the wide gray space between. To walk the mud flats surrounded by natural death traps in a reputedly dead sea blurs life across time and place. Separations melt I to we. Under our skins thrive microbial ecosystems. Swathing in our ears, biorhythms reverberate as microcytons, humming as a heartbeat or the ancient music of the spheres. In a seemingly timeless yet time-stamped landscape, Dormancy turns agency, urgency. Everything is here, there, then, and now. In danger of getting stuck in habitual traps, a footprint evokes a human body. A feather conjures a bird. Ugliness beautifies. Darkness meets light as binary stars falling into each other's gravity and interdependently orbiting while constellating with other shifting stars. Well, thank you so much, Gretchen, for those beautiful words. Um, and thank you to all the panelists for sharing a bit of your just su such inspiring research. Um, and, you know, thinking about um, thinking with your your work together as a kind of set of four, it has me thinking even more deeply about our experience of time in the context of climate change and the the kind of oft uh, repeated or rift comment. I think it's Zizek originally that we have to act as if climate change is uh, real in order so that it in fact will not be real. And I think, you know, he, I think he first uh, said this maybe about 10 years ago, we're obviously in a, a little bit different um, place with regards to the realities and presentness of climate change. But, but this question of time, I think obtains um, thinking that we, you know, we project, project through a time space in order to warp the ways that we're moving through the now in order to project, prevent or um, mitigate a certain future. This is a kind of time-space travel that um, I feel really resonates with the, how um, a lot of Black feminist scholars that I'm reading are, are speaking about it specifically, or for example, uh, Alexis Pauling Gums mentions that um, she describes Black feminist time travel as Harriet Tubman um, imagining a future when her people would be free so that she would have the strength to go back and free others in the same way that activists in the street now kind of draw on the strength of Harriet Tubman to keep up the fight. So there's a, there's a time space um, traversing that is happening um, in this, you know, activist imaginary that seems in some ways, um, you know, really alive in each of your works differently. So thinking about um, Yaletti's Deep Time Reckoning, of course, um, the Lax podcast, which I imagine recording itself is kind of a weird time-space projection to future audiences, um, but also just recording in the warping time of pandemic. Um, and also Shu's sense and somatic structure is difficult to communicate, which is, of course, a, a kind of complexity of uh, bringing something into the future. And Henderson's feeling of going backward in time, seeing beings frozen in the tar seeps as part of this wicked stickiness of climate change. So in, in a kind of short sum, I'm wondering how each of you think about the role of, of time and specifically like just the somatic experience of time. And if your perspective on that has shifted in the course of your, um, in each of your projects, and you can go ahead and answer in whatever order feels appropriate. All right, I can go if you'd like. Um, so, all right. um, 
So yeah, the big epistemic challenge in my fieldwork was, you know, how do I kind of transpose uh, this abstract, highly technical safety case, nuclear waste expertise into something that's more experience near. Um, and what I came up with were these kind of quirky mental time travel exercises that I call reckonings at the end of my book. I gave a little example of this in my intro talk, the Cronin Cannon, Greenland ice sheet glacier, how I can kind of spin them off and reframe them as deep time uh, imagination exercises. Uh, but this can also mean embracing something like uh, what geologist Marcia Bjornrud calls timefulness, um, which is going through your life more mindful or timeful uh, that our present world contains so many uh, earlier worlds and traces of the past that are still with us in some way, um, uh, little traces and fragments everywhere. Uh, but what I'll add here to this question is this timefulness can be a fully embodied somatic experience too. Uh, it can be kind of an art of noticing um, as you walk through the world uh, that engages with our sense of smell, vision, touch, sound, whatever, because deep time is everywhere. Uh, for example, we, when we walk down the street, we can attune to how the rocks beneath our feet have this multi-million or billion year geological history. Uh, we can think about how the air we breathe uh, is, is mediated by uh, carbon emissions for decades, centuries um, ago. Uh, we can reflect on the, if we hear a bird chirping as it flies by, reflect on the multi-million year evolutionary history that brought that bird to encounter me in that moment. And then you can start thinking about the multi-million year evolutionary history in my own cells, in my own body, in my own fleshy existence, right? Uh, so this is kind of a, a deep time horizon scanning that I advocate in my book. Um, um, and it can be a somatic embodied practice. When I go hiking in Appalachia, for instance, I try to imagine the rolling hills uh, looking like the Alps or the Himalayas. I have one right behind me, actually, um, because that's how uh, the Appalachians looked at a different point in geological history. Uh, so it's a way of taking those imageries as a way of distancing yourself from the now um, and enchanting your hike with a wider time horizon. This can not only help us become more wise planetary stewards, but also help us become more uh, polytemporal beings. And I think that's precisely what the current global environmental crisis calls for. Um, I just really love the idea of timefulness. So I thought I would chime in and thinking about smell in terms of timefulness. Um, so yeah, I, like it makes me think of um, Tim Choi and Jerry Z's work on like atmospheric suspension and the way that part particles change states, right? So from, you know, being in lakes, being in dirt, they kind of get kicked back up into the air um, and things that had settled in other times can kind of like become re-enlivened and then enter and re-enliven our bodies in different ways. Um, I, I did want to say that the, the theme of this panel really made me think about smell as a sense of urgency, right? A sense that, you know, has evolved as largely a warning sense about things not to eat, places not to go. Um, and so I, I was interested in smell as a way uh, as a kind of tool for communicating about like spatial inequities in like the distribution of air, the way that what I call differential deodorization has basically like deferred that urgency of, you know, a bunch of different emissions, largely climate emissions for people in deodorized places of privilege, right? That the, that air gets moved elsewhere. And so even if one knows rationally about like, climate change, the kind, like we don't have to breathe climate change um, with the same amount, like level of intensity day to day, right? So that kind of embodied knowledge gets kind of removed. Um, I, I also wanted to say in terms of like the black feminist thinking about time that I've been, since finishing the book, I've been thinking of quite a bit and writing a little bit about BIPOC speculative fiction and the uses of olfaction in the work of like Larissa Lai Saltfish Girl, but also Octavia Butler, right? So um, her imagining of smell as a way to kind of like call us or seduce us into alternate forms of queer interspecies kinship that at least offer like structures of organizing kinship and the world that, you know, might be outside of patriarchal um, modes that have had clearly like awful climate consequences. I can kind of jump in um, because the Rosal point where I'm talking about is very much situated in deep time um, and, and accompanying people who are working, you know, in geology and paleontology, but it's also a very smelly place. 
the Great Salt Lake is kind of known as a as a stinky lake. Um, and so it's this place that really invites um, perspective shifts uh, in its extreme kind of inaccessible environment can, that can make the body very um, aware of the present tense while paradoxically feeling the sense of, of prehistory and futurism spiraling together. Um, so in its otherworldly spareness and contingency evokes um, other places and stakes when you're very, very localized, but you're also aware of that it's dependent on the water cycles and droughts of the American West. Um, and also the scientists are, are setting um, that space is astrobiological analogs on Mars. So there's really a kind of sense of here and elsewhere always present. Um, I was originally drawn to that site because of Spiral uh, Jetty and my interest in land art. But as I accompanied scientists who were studying natural asphalt and pelican and animal entrapment in a fairly wild setting, interconnections, uh, of course, grew from um, my accident on man-made asphalt in an urban environment. And then all of the layers of extracted resources associated with raw oil. Um, so both types of asphalt became spaces of, of urgency where a step could get any living being fatally stuck. Um, and through repeated visits to this site, um, it was, that of course was not um, local to me. I was coming as an outsider learning from um, this array of scientists, land managers, curators, and others caring for a challenging place. Um, that, that sense of seepage and, and the lake itself uh, invited integration. Um, it is a kind of cycling space and I learned to see it, uh, the lake as a kind of body, we call it a body of water um, among other bodies of, of water and land. And I think this kind of sense of time and space comes into that. And, and Jamie Butler, who is one of uh, the people who I accompany who's here in this room and coordinates the Great Salt Lake Institute likens Great Salt Lake to a heartbeat um, and all those rivers as arteries in the wider basin pulsing life through interdependent ecosystems. So if, if toxins are dumped in the lake, migratory birds bring them elsewhere. So there is, again, this sense of, of local and global and what what unfolds over time and how that changes. So over seasons and, and that sense of time, both um, again, over long term scale seed time, but then the shorter the lake's natural agency, that of the tar seeps, the birds, um, they're always kind of asserting themselves relationally. And, and going back to your point about somatics, it, it really shifts the kind of registers of engagement and multi-sensory knowledge. Um, so even on that slide where I had a set of footprints, um, those were uh, those were my footprints where I got stuck accidentally in a tar seat um, that had been covered um, by sand. And you really see the winter when it's frozen is a very different space than in summer when um, it's baking heat and the lake really is is a, a series of mirages in the microbial life watercolors, um, the, the palette and the bugs nip your skin. And then of course the live pelicans come um, and migrate because it's uh, at lying at the intersection of two of the four major bird flyways of North America. So that that sense of, of perception, um, of course, really shifts it from, from a dead sea to something very much with life um, that continues to spiral into other times and places uh, that also interconnect these concepts of environmental and human injuries and healing over time. Uh, thank you very much for this question. This is also something we have discussed among ourselves towards the middle of the project, because when we talk about the embodied experience of recording the podcast, it's kind of you know, a disembodied experience because we're in a digital space, but we're never together. And we work as a team and we host guest speakers that focus on their locality and their embodied experiences. But again, we never share the space with anybody else. So I guess we came to a point where we cannot think of our embodied experience separate from virtual space as well. Um, in terms of time, uh, when the pandemic started, I think we felt the urgency but also we have lost our sense of time because we were not changing our spaces. And the production also is not a linear process for the recorders and the editors, although it might feel linear for the uh, listeners. And another thing is that we're creating an archive for future audiences. But one of the most important things for us is to engage with current issues. And even if we are dealing with older problems, 
Uh, we try to tie them uh, to our contemporary moment through their uh, historical processes. And also we reflect on today, but we also project to the future. And there is also the documentary aspect of the series. We document now, not only in its historical uh, grand structural changes, but also what kind of futures it can signify. Um, that's that's very helpful. Thanks. Um, okay. Uh, so, I uh, I mean, since time certainly time has been very important. I thought uh, something else uh, that was kind of threaded together all the different projects that I was sort of uh, reading and and listening to, um, and something that I think more generally has been uh, crucial for environmental humanities and eco criticism overall has been this. Um, aspect of attending to things that have not been attended to or haven't been given a kind of emphasis. And the other aspect was um, the sense of accompanying or collaborating with uh, researchers, activists, writers that I saw in all, all, all projects. So Sean, your project, which uh, fabulous book, really thinks through the question of what is the what is what an emphasis on smell can do in terms of thinking about environmental risks? So thinking about smell uh, uh, in a media world saturated with images and sound. Uh, Gretchen, it, you mentioned, uh, of course, accompanying uh, Jamie Butler, who is here uh, on on these kind of travels to the Great Salt Lake, uh, but also talking about the lake as um, sometimes very ignored because it's not considered beautiful in this kind of a perception of a certain kind of aesthetic sense. Um, uh, Vincent, in your uh, thing, it's, it's certainly about, you know, paying attention to deep times of nuclear wastes, um, to the technical details of canisters, copper canisters, but it was also, uh, it seemed like you were uh, in the time that you spent with the uh, experts in Finland, there's a whole expert cultures which comes out from Finland in your book. It seemed like you were uh, accompanying them on their, in their lives. Uh, so, uh, and I mean, uh, thinking about Lack, uh, Muge again, uh, in your, you know, you mentioned uh, that one of the aims is to have uh, a conversation across many different knowledge systems. And you have um, people who are artists, people who are activists, people who are academics, all coming together uh, that you interview and you. So how do you sense these two aspects? One, of course, something about attending to something which has not been attended to and this aspect of collaboration or accompaniment in your various projects. All right, well, we can stick to the order from before. Um, so deep time is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's something that's always with us, um, uh, but it's something that's almost never attended to in everyday life for vast majority of people, uh, unless you're a geologist or um, um, a variety of other people too. But uh, one reason is because it's overwhelming. Uh, gazing into the abyss of deep time uh, can evoke these feelings of meaninglessness or awe or mystery or terror or the sublime. Um, and when you reach out to try to analyze or grasp its complexity, you're kind of left with what Marilyn Strathern calls remainders, right? Like you analyze and then there's a remainder at the end, which elicits more analysis, which leaves more remainders, which elicits more analysis, which leaves more remainders and so on forever. So there's this kind of um, fascinating analytical infinity inside of deep time that's right beneath our noses that people don't really pay too much attention to. And it's ubiquitously everywhere. Um, yet it's also strangely invisible. So my book tries to kind of escape that gridlock. Um, and I do so through collaborative ethnography, as you say, accompanying these experts, co-producing visions of the future, reasoning laterally or side by side them, um, and kind of seeing how ethnography can be used to kind of absorb and retool and redeploy my uh, nuclear waste informants, long-sided patterns of reasoning as techniques uh, for making deep time at least more thinkable. Uh, I don't say we can all become deep time reckoners with accuracy, but we can make it something a little more uh, amenable to something other than just navel gazing speculation. We can have some, a more palpable uh, set of resources for thinking about the future. So what's this copper canister, uh, copper nuclear waste canister look like from this perspective? Well, um, you know, the thing they put their um, uh, spent fuel in. Well, in one sense it's for them, it's an engineered barrier system they have to get a regulatory license for. For me, it's something different. It's uh, what Gabriel Hecht calls an interscalar vehicle. Um, and it's something that can uh, help me navigate through deep time, human time, political time, um, social time, 
and connect these different stories and timescales that are usually kept apart and separate and pull them together. So what's the canister? Well, it's a nexus of regulatory temporalities, right? It's one feature of a broader nuclear waste repository construction licensing procedure. Um, it's also a nexus of political temporalities. It's an artifact of Finland's decision to build nuclear reactors in the 70s and early 80s, and then again in the early 2000s, are one of the only Western European countries building more nuclear reactors right now. Um, it's also this nexus of um, organizational temporalities, right? It's this mundane artifact of everyday office life and technocratic paperwork. And then within this, it's also a nexus of deep geological time uh, temporalities, right? This effort to contain the multimillennial um, uh, 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 half-life of nuclear waste. So put these all together, what do you get? Well, you get this vehicle um, for making deep time more experienced near and for navigating uh, all the different timescapes, to use Barbara Adams' terms, um, that converge in a nuclear waste repository project. So I think it can be an interesting laboratory for be, have, adopting a more polytemporal uh, sensibility. It's one of the most crucial tasks uh, during global ecological crisis as well. Um, so I can go next. I did want to just note um, the invitation to please send questions in the chat box um, while, while we're speaking. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm trying to remember what I was going to want to say about smell. All oh, right. So this question of becoming sensitive, right, in different ways, I think it really gets at like one of the like starting points of my project, which is thinking about like the implications of the hierarchy of the senses, right? And like how we kind of organize the senses and use the senses to organize the world for like our ideas about ecology, ecological relation and so forth. And smell is a notoriously plastic sense, right? So we can learn to speak about it with more precision but also to perceive with more precision. Uh, Bruno Latour has written beautifully about this. And one of the things that we become more sensitive to is like the way in, well, not, not only kind of like, you know, moral factory sensitivity, but the different kinds of ecological and social complexity that inform the way we smell, right? So one example would be the kind of like chemical and microbial, microbial relationships that we engage in when we inhale. And that condition our sort of like perception of smells. And I, I think that like the idea of collaboration and accompaniment um, gets at the way that smell is already kind of intra-agentially collaborative, right? That it's always transcorporeal, we're taking things in. Um, but also the various kinds of collaboration that olfactory practice involves. So a lot of the artists that I write about, you know, they do field work, ethnographic interviews, they work with perfumers, chemists, neuroscientists. Um, and so there's just like a lot of exciting space for interdisciplinary collaboration in this field. Thanks. Okay, I'll jump in. Um, no, the, this this question I think is is at the heart of of this and other projects. Kind of the value of of collaboration, especially in the humanities, when a lot of methodologies are are trained in individualistic terms. And so one of the things that I loved about um, being part of this group and and any kind of really cross science, social science. Uh, and, and humanities and arts project is that everyone is an expert in something, but everyone is a beginner in another way. And so it brings the kind of humility to the process um, where, where we have to be unlearning and learning at once. And so that, that sense of the, the opportunities that it opens up um, for better consultation and listening, um, which, which obviously all of us are learning every day for the, the, our entire lives, um, but but this kind of um, process, uh, uh, particularly in this space, um, then opened up kind of collaborations in in other spaces. And so, if it becomes a kind of ripple effect, if we're if we're kind of on, always on the edge of our own practice, um, there can be these spaces of evolving with the planet's um, needs. Because just again, in terms of urgency. Um, none of us are individual, um, and, and there are all of these uh, incredible human and non-human agents that we live with and, and what kind of knowledges um, can come from that. And in, in terms of going to an overlooked place and then the overlooked kind of attentions that um, this place asks of us, um, 
there are obviously many fields that start coming uh, to bear because the, the collaborative stewards um, in terms of like the Great Salt Lake Institute, it's also the Dia Art Foundation and the Utah Museum of Fine Arts who are stewarding Spiral Jetty as well as the Division of Forestry, Fire and State Lands um, that, that the, the artwork needs to leave the lands from. And then the layers just kind of continue. So all of them are bringing their own narratives um, to this place. Um, and so again, there are these really interesting um, opportunities for exchange and because it demands a multi-sensory attention, um, there are obviously many, many fields, but like disability studies too. What, what are the limitations of, um, of kind of uh, normal bodies in, in turn, quote unquote, um, in terms of how we, we limit ourselves um, going through the world with just certain kinds of, of sensory registers and how can we open ourselves up more to that? Uh, thank you for the question. As you suggested, the importance of community organizing and collaboration in environmental justice has appeared as a common uh, point in many of our episodes. And in order to catalyze substantial change for environmental justice, we believe that we need to close the gap between academic discourse and public engagement. While creating this platform for discussion, our aim was to make accessible uh, the academic resources we have to a wider audience. And in that sense, we wanted to make the podcast series a public humanities project, I believe. And here we believe that the podcast itself is a helpful uh, mode because it provides an easier engagement. And it also helps us bring people into conversation from uh, different arenas, from research, art, and activism. And I can give you our keynote event as an example here. We brought together academic Darren Renko, artist activist Laura Anderson Barbata, and academic artist activist Melissa Leon Fernandez to discuss environmental and racial justice. I guess the project helped us blur uh, disciplinary boundaries. But also for a listener of the podcast, one week they will be hearing from a philosopher and their own experiences of discrimination in the medical system in the U.S. And the next week they'll hear from a, an art teacher who worked in Flint, Michigan and was water poisoned herself. So while we're bringing people from like various fields and studies, it's not only fields and studies, but it's about thinkers who live through these crises themselves. And we don't normally get these perspectives in a conference and the podcast format has allowed us to bring them together. Thank you so much. I mean, I have, I'm sure I have a lot of questions. April has a lot of questions and all of us have a lot of questions. I'm not sure what the protocol is since I meant to say in the chat that we will get to them by 2 p.m., not 1 p.m. Um, so that was an errata, but um, does anybody have a question? Are we allowed to have one question from the audience? Uh, I think we can. Wants to weigh in on that, or <laughs> a question that's not in the chat, perhaps, but you would like to ask. Do the do the panelists have a question for one another, uh, which you want to ask? Too many questions. I think that's opening up <laughs> another uh, hour at least, or maybe another year. <laughs> Uh, no, these have been fabulous uh, projects and it's been wonderful to hear about them uh, more. And I know I have more questions, which I will email <laughs> Sean, I'll email Vincent, I'll email uh, Miguel, email Gretchen and uh, all of you who heard uh, about their wonderful projects, I'm sure will email them and I'm sure they would love to hear from you. Um, uh, okay, so Jamie did ask a question. Jamie, would you like to, um, maybe that's the last word today? Cool. And it was, um, that, you know, in our own little world, right? Just like everybody else. How do we connect with folks like you that are um, doing all of this beautiful work? Is there a way to be more intentional that I could say some tips? Thanks for that question, Jamie. And I, I mean, I think it goes both ways would be like my like my first note, right? Which is to say that I think a lot of folks like us in eco-criticism are very interested in being in conversation with and in collaborating with 
scientists and folks in, in a lot of other disciplines, right? So um, in the smell world, like there are panels going on at like one of the chemic chemistry, occupational health and chemistry conferences where, you know, like people are organizing a panel that involved a historian and they're looking for a cultural critic. Um, so these kinds of like multidisciplinary platforms would be one place to get conversations going. But I think just emailing each other, right? And this is something that I, I have been very like lax in doing. Um, and, you know, I feel like there's a kind of barrier where I'm like afraid to uh, email like an olfactory neuroscientist, right? Who knows like way more about how things work at the level of the brain um, than I do. But I, I, it is something that I'm I'm trying to get over and do once in a while. And I I would love to get emails from scientists, and I'm sure many of us would. Thanks. I think we will just conclude by uh, thanking Asli organizers and all the participants. And of course, uh, our great audience uh, for joining us today on a Friday afternoon uh, or late morning, depending on where you are. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all.